From Esther 3, 1 through 6. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jay. Here we go. Please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 3. Now we're in our third of eight weeks in Esther, and I will tell you that today we are going to uh, be looking at several other pieces of Scripture because there's so much backstory going on in this particular chapter of Esther. Uh, you will not have to turn to those other passages. We'll have it up on the uh, screen, and I'm just going to read it and talk about it. Uh, what I want you to do is plant yourself firmly in Esther chapter 3 so you can follow along there. And remember the pattern that we're doing now in Esther is I'm going to review first, catch you up to, uh, to where we are in the story. Uh, then we'll look at the text for the day, which is uh, chapter 3 uh, today. And then there will be a, a closing question, a closing application, or a closing argument, depending on how we do it. So... Um, the year is now 475, so chronologically in chapter 3, uh, we pass through another four or five years from the close of chapter 2, and the place is Persia, which would be um, uh, present-day Iran. So uh, Persia, the nation, the kingdom of Persia existed, uh, and it was very big at the time, much bigger than present-day Iran is, uh, some 25, 2600 years ago. Now, some of the Jewish families that had been carried off in exile to Babylon some 125 years earlier, when Persia conquered Babylon, they allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem. And many of the Jews did go back. But some of the Jews decided, first of all, to stay in Babylon. They'd been living there for decades, and they seemed to get along just fine in Babylon. And also, moving back to Jerusalem was going to be really, really hard because they had to rebuild the city. But also, some of the people that didn't go back to Jerusalem, they they, they left Babylon, <clears throat> but they went further east to Susa, the capital of Persia, because they felt perhaps that the uh, economic uh, opportunities would be better there. And Mordecai and Esther, who are two main characters in this story, and their cousins, they were, their families were part of those Jews that moved east to uh, Susa. And so in the, the story starts in chapter 1 in the year 483 B.C. The king, 
Ahasuerus, or we also know him as King Xerxes, and I'll refer to him mostly as Xerxes, um, but he had a party and a war strategy in chapter 1 that lasted 187 days. And at the end of that party, uh, Scripture says he was merry with wine. In other words, he was schnockered. He was, he was drunk. And, and he commanded his wife Vashti to come in and strut around in front of all of his drunken friends. And Vashti refused this command. So the king got very angry. And he, and, he, and he went to the council of his cabinet members, his wise uh, sages who gather around him and help counsel him in matters such as this. What should I do? And these men, not wanting to let a good crisis go to waste, decided to give uh, King Xerxes some advice that was really in their best interest and not in Xerxes' best interest. So they told the king, you need to banish Vasti for the rest of her life. She'll never come to you again. She can no longer be be queen, and you need to sign an edict for your entire kingdom. And this edict needs to go out to everybody, and the edict, which is done under the laws of the Medes and Persians and can never be revoked, will tell all women in the kingdom that they can never refuse a command from their husbands. These men, the last thing they wanted was for a wife, God forbid, to have rights and agency in the midst of a marriage. And they said, we don't want that. And then King did all that. And then he goes off and he wages war against the Greeks for four years and he lost. He lost this war that he should have won, supposed to win. And so in 479 BC, he returns defeated. And now he misses Vashti, but he can't do anything about it. So again, under the seemingly imbecilic, yet God-ordained counsel of his cabinet, they say, hey, why don't you have a year-long contest and, and gather uh, 365 women and sleep with each one of them and decide which one will be queen? And, and the king says, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. And Esther, a Jewish woman who hid her ethnicity from the king and everybody else, because otherwise she would not have been selected for this, she ends up winning this contest and becomes the new queen. In the meantime, her cousin... Mordecai uncovers a plot to have the king assassinated, and later in this series, we will return to this important sub-story in the book. So now, chapter 3, the king, he's in a somewhat vulnerable position because he's lost a war that he was supposed to win, and there was an assassination attempt. He decides to clean house, and he promotes a new chief operating officer of Xerxes Enterprises, and it's this guy named uh, Haman, and that's where we start today. I'm going to reread what Jay read for us, but I'm going to go another five verses further, and then we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking these first 11 verses. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite. That's an important clue in there that we'll unpack later. He's an Agagite the son of Hamaditha, and advanced him and set him above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king. The king had so commanded concerning Haman. This was an edict from the king that you need to bow down to Haman. But Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, And he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. 
So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, they cast pur, that is they cast lots, they threw dice before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws, the Jews, are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So Haman steps into this advisory and leadership vacuum that was created by the failed campaign against Greece and this <clears throat> assassination plot against uh, King Xerxes. And, and several commentators have written about this, um, sort of supposing that it's like Haman went to ki- the king and said something like this. He said, you know, king, uh, I really think it's time for you to get rid of your current counselors. Uh, the war didn't go well. Um, there, there was this, this assassination plot that, that got bred, and, and certainly uh, Big Then and Teresh, they're not the only ones who are thinking that they'd like to get rid of you, and so there's probably other, uh, other plots out there. And your current counselors, they've become kind of siloed and cut off from everybody else. They're, they're not part of the breakfast clubs. They're not going to the business luncheon meetings. They're, they're not networking the way they should. They're not going to happy hours. They're just all siloed. I, on the other hand, I'm involved in four or five different networking organizations. Organizations. I'm going to the happy hours. I'm listening to the people. I have my ear to the ground. I know what's going on out there with the people. You need to get me in there in charge of this so I can put an end to all of this stuff. For instance, uh, let me tell you about Mordecai and his people. I already know about them. Have your counselors said anything to you about Mordecai and the Jews? Of course they haven't, but I know about them. They can't be trusted. We need to get rid of them. And guess what, King? I'll even help with the financing of that. And the king agrees to this. Some people say maybe the king agreed to it because he thought, well, this will be an easy win to pick up after that humiliating loss to the Greeks. Maybe that's part of what motivated him. At any rate, he's motivated to turn all of his power over to Haman. After this coup attempt by Bigthan and Teresh, uh, the king threw out his cabinet advisors and consolidated his power in one man, Haman. And that's not a good idea to consolidate all of your power and authority in one person. Not a good idea. There wasn't a management or leadership book uh, that existed in the 5th century BC that would tell you that that was a good idea for anybody uh, to do. And the king not only gave Haman his power, but then he also turned him into sort of a god. He insisted that anybody in Haman's presence had to bow down to him. And they did. Everybody except Mordecai. Now, it is interesting to consider Mordecai's behavior because in one moment, we read that he warns the king about an assassination attempt. And in the next moment, he refuses a royal order to bow down. Here's a hot take for you. Sometimes people of faith do seemingly inconsistent things, yet they are completely consistent with what God expects. 
And we're beginning to see now a change in Mordecai, actually. Mordecai really wasn't acting like a faithful Jew during the first uh, couple of chapters. But now we see him uh, begin to take Torah seriously. We begin to see him uh, take idol worship seriously. But there's also something else going on there, which we're going to get to. But first of all, let's talk about Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. This goes back 125 years to when the Jews were first sent into exile in Babylon by God. And here's what God says to them once he sends them to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God says to them, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, people of faith are to bloom where they are planted. They are to be a benefit to the place where they are. God calls us to act on behalf of and, and of the good of the place where we live and for the good of the people that we live around. In this instance of the pending coup, Mordecai embodied this. The chaos that would have happened after King Xerxes had been assassinated in Susa and in parts beyond that place uh, would have been terrible. It would have been destructive. Many people, there would have been collateral damage everywhere. And so Mordecai acted to prevent this chaos. But also, now Mordecai remembers that there is but one God, Yahweh. And so no bowing down to anyone or anything else. So now you've got to go into Deuteronomy, into the Mosaic Law. And we find in Deuteronomy 5 and Deuteronomy 6, these words from God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God. And then in chapter 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall walk and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So there's no way Mordecai is going to bow down to Haman, even though he helped the king in another context. So now we might ask, well, what's Haman's deal? <laughs> well, he became, and this is a big theme today, Haman became the embodiment and personification of the idol of power. The idol, the false god of power. Now, it, I'll return to that in a second, but there's an interesting other fact to unpack here. Neither Haman nor Mordecai, neither one of them is a Persian. Neither one of them is a Persian. Mordecai is a Jew, and Haman is an Amalekite. If you know anything about the history, which I will tell you, of the Amalekites and the Jews, you begin to suspect that there might be a problem between Haman and Mordecai that goes deeper than just some jealousy or something, 
or some or the Torah thing. Okay, listen. Um, here you go. There's been a centuries-long conflict uh, between Haman's family and Mordecai's family. Centuries long. These memories go on for a long time. Uh, let me read to you out of Deuteronomy 25. This is God talking to his people. And he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. So when the Jews were coming out of Egypt during the Exodus, uh, Amalek, the Amalekites, kept attacking the Jews for no reason whatsoever other than they wanted to eradicate uh, the Jews. So remember what Amalek did to you on your way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. In other words, they would always attack from behind. They would attack the stragglers and the weakest and the women and the children. Uh, This was a, here you go, I'm going to read this in a second. It's a form of terrorism, okay? It's a cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. He did not fear God. Amalek, the Amalekites, did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land of the Lord your God, is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. In other words, God is going to take care of the Amalekites someday. That's going to happen. That's going to happen in the future. So listen to how Mike Cosper describes this in his commentary on Esther. Israel faced the Amalekites shortly after receiving the law at Mount Sinai. The Amalekites attacked Israel from the rear, killing the stragglers, the weak, the sick, killing women and children. The Amalekites were terrorists, seeking to demoralize the Jews before engaging in direct conflict. And one does not have to think hard to find parallels today in those who target innocents in order to demoralize their enemies. Interestingly, Cosper wrote this in 2018, six years ago. It's a win-at-all-costs approach to power. For the terrorist strategy, there is no distinction between a well-armed soldier and the sick child, between combatants and non-combatants. There are only ends, and means do not matter. Now, Cosper goes on to write this, and it'll be up on the screen. People of faith and religion get blamed for a lot of the violence and wars in the world. And sometimes that is true, but not nearly as much as people claim. The quest for the idol of power is much more to blame. And the Amalekites offer a common and terrifying counterexample to religion and faith as the reason for wars and violence. And that is a community and worldview where, precisely because it is not religious or faith-based, everything is possible and acceptable. Truth is, the lack of acknowledging God is more to blame for the ills of this world than faith in God. So, there's some backstory there. Now, another level of backstory. If you look about, I don't know, 500 years later, in about the year 1000 BC, so now this is 500 years before uh, Esther, but 500 years after the Exodus, you look further, uh, the, the, it, the nation of Israel has their first king, and his name is Saul. Saul is anointed king by Samuel, and if you look in 1 Samuel chapter 15, which I'm not going to read to you, but I'm going to summarize for you, you look in 1 Samuel 15, you see this long story of Saul and the Amalekites. And it was instigated by God. Now, Saul's reign started off pretty well. He had some victories and people loved him and things were going well. God was even uh, mostly pleased with Saul. So God goes to Samuel, who is Saul's trusted advisor, 
and says to Samuel, it's time for us to take care of the Amalekites. Go to Saul, tell him to organize the military and attack the Amalekites, and, and you need to get rid of the Amalekites. And when you do this, you cannot let anything from the Amalekites survive, and you cannot take any plunder or spoil of war. Nothing. You cannot keep anything. Nothing at all. And so Samuel tells Saul this, and Saul says, all right, I'm in. He organizes 210,000 warriors, and they go and they attack the Amalekites. And they win this war decisively. But three things happen that God is not pleased with. Number one, in the process, Saul builds a memorial to himself. To himself. Number two, Saul spared the life of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Haman is an Agagite. He is a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. Mordecai is a descendant of Kish. Kish is Saul's father. Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. This is like the Hatfields and the McCoys 500 years later. They're still mad at each other. They probably have no idea why, but they're mad at each other. Okay? And then the third thing that Saul does is he spares the best of the spoils, the best of the cows, the best of the goats, and the best of the lambs. So God goes to Samuel and says, I'm really upset with Saul. He did not keep the command. And so Samuel says, I'll go take care of it. Samuel walks several miles to, to where Saul is. Saul hears that Samuel is coming. Now watch this story. This story, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I want us to hear it because it's exactly what we do when we disobey. It's exactly what we do when we sin. We, we, we try to shuck and jive and try to get out of it. We blame shit. It's, it's, it's just a perfect pattern of what we do. So here's what happens. Saul hears that Samuel's coming. So he jumps up and runs to Saul. So he's trying to beat him to the punch. And he gets there and he goes, Samuel, Samuel, I have kept the Lord's command. And Samuel says, well then, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And, and, and Saul says, all right, that's the first confrontation. You didn't keep the command. And so Saul says, oh, well, well we kept the best of the spoil. We kept the best of the spoil to offer to God in sacrifice. You ever, any of you parents, you ever have a kid who you put the cookie jar way up high and then you leave the room and they build some elaborate sort of thing with chairs and ladders and stuff and they climb up there and they're reaching into the cookie jar to get a cookie and you walk in, you say, what are you doing? And they say, I'm getting a cookie for you. <laughs> this is what Saul's doing. We kept it for God. Okay. Samuel shakes his head, and then he has a two-verse poem. It's a great poem, and here's the summary of that poem, and it cuts right to the quick. He says to Saul, he says, does, does God really prefer sacrifice to obedience? Is that what you're telling me? That he'd rather you sacrifice than obey his word? And finally Saul goes, okay, you're right, you're right. So he denies it, he blame shifts, he call, call, says that it's everybody else's fault, and then he, and then he, and then he says, uh, okay, you're right. So not only is Mordecai a Jew, but Saul is his ancestor. Not only is Haman an Amalekite, but his an ancestor is also Agag. So we have myriad reasons for Mordecai not bowing down to Haman. The Torah prohibits it. Mordecai disdains the false god of power that Haman is enamored with. And two families, these two families, have a violent history of conflict. 
And the reason in the text is clear, because I'm a Jew. Now, as long as we're in the neighborhood, let's ask this question. Have you ever heard the saying that pride and discontent sleep in the same bed? Pride and discontent sleep in the same bed. Think about Haman. Haman had climbed the political ladder to the highest place that he could attain under that regime and structure, yet none of those accomplishments mattered to him as long as just one person resisted. He had no ability to walk by that one person who didn't show him respect and go, that's his problem, not mine. This is a vivid picture of what we're talking about here. Ancient rabbis described the quest and hunger for power as like having a a pet crocodile. You feed it and feed it and feed it, and yet it is never satisfied. Haman's pride and his discontent are sleeping in the same bed, and he can't take it. So what about Haman's response to Mordecai? Seems like overkill. I'm going to kill all the Jews. Well, that's not the first and only time that's ever happened. For instance, there's a guy named Joseph Stalin who once wrote that one death is a tragedy, one million deaths is a statistic. Haman is trying to hide his agenda in numbers. The text even references that as well. Furthermore, is any, uh, just ask, has anybody in here ever heard of Goodwin's Law? Anybody? Okay, that's nice that you're not on the internet. That's really good. This is a little bit more contemporary, but here's what Goodwin, Goodwin's Law is. Goodwin's Law claims that any dissonant conversation that takes place on the internet between two people, any dissonant conversation, if it goes on long enough, it will end with one person calling another person Hitler. You're Hitler. Okay. Now, many liken Haman to Hitler. And if we look at Goodwin's Law, we may be tempted to disregard that comparison because calling someone Hitler today is commonplace, but don't disregard it. Haman is an early Hitler. Haman is going for genocide. And notice I didn't say complete or utter genocide because the word genocide does not need an adverb or an adjective or a modifier or a descriptor. Genocide is genocide. He's going for genocide. Government-sanctioned elimination of an entire people group. You know, evil has many faces. It's incredible. I run into people all the time. Uh, who claim that there, there is really no evil in this world. Everything's good. Everything's fine. Refuse to believe that evil exists. Evil today may be personified in an angry mob or in a serial killer or in a, a person who is abusing another person in a relationship. But here, I want you to hear this. Here, in the Persian throne room, evil was manifested as political pragmatism. Evil was dressed up and pretended as dignity and policy, but it's driven by the desire for power and control. I'm glad that never happens today. So where did Haman's evil come from? Well, that's easy to answer. It came from Genesis 3 and the original sin and the the fallen nature of sinful humans. Unbridled in this case, no filters for Haman, and it came from Satan. Haman's evil is demonic. You know, evil is real. Salvation is necessary. Jesus is Messiah, and we desperately need him. Um, I've I've read and heard many people dismiss the story of Esther as coming from an age and an era of radical violence and moral decay as if that's not happening today. We're not immune to that today. Don't fall for the lie that just because we live in the 21st century, we are somehow too progressive to practice evil. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis last century called that chronological snobbery. I'm alive today, therefore I must be better than anybody who lived behind me or before me. We need Jesus. Now something else this story points out. People of faith need to get used to being in the minority. People of faith need to get used to being in the minority. Christians often, I hear this all the time, Christians often claim that they need to be in the majority in order to exist and to flourish and to do well. Well, look at the story arc of Scripture. How often were people of faith in the majority in this book that covers, oh, 1,500, 1,600 years? How often were they in the majority? Hardly ever. And when they were in the majority, when Christians are in the majority, we have this incredible tendency to screw it all up, just like Saul. That should have been, in 1 Samuel 15, that should have been Saul's best moment. It turns out being his worst moment, other than when he died at the end of 1 Samuel. Turns out to be his worst moment. He suddenly is in the majority, suddenly has all the power, and he blows it. That's just the tendency of what we do. Because we end up, just like Saul, somehow making it about us rather than about God. When that happens... We're in trouble. What we need to understand and what the book of Esther shows us is that even when God does not seem to be present, he is present and active in everything that is happening. And it's for his good and our glory. There is no such thing as a maverick molecule outside of God's sovereignty. There is no nanosecond that God is not in control of everything in this universe. There is no square inch in the cosmos under his, that is not under his reign. And we need to remember this. Satan wanted the Jews eradicated. And the reason was because Satan knows the Messiah will come through the Jews. So the Jews must be eliminated. It's the same reason Satan incited King Herod to kill all the babies under two years old after Jesus was born some 475 years later. Same reason. Yet as we will see, God will work through Esther's courage and cunning and Mordecai's persistence to eventually save his people. We'll see that in the future. Let's wrap this up with the last paragraph. In Esther 3, starting in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman had commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people under its own language. And it was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued uh, as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Couriers were... went out hurriedly under the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to have a drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion by the edict. This law that Haman talks the king into cannot be revoked because it's under the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And it called for the annihilation of the Jews, including all those Jews who went back to Jerusalem. This is uh, kingdom-wide. So that's what we're dealing with now going forward in this story, genocide. 
But that last verse, verse 15, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. That is a clear indication that although Haman was getting his way, not everybody was on board. I mean, can you just hear the people in Susa saying, why? What is this about? I have business partners who are Jews. I have customers who are Jews. I have suppliers who who are Jews. We get along together. We eat together. We're friends. What's going on? What did they ever do? This makes no sense. Well, we'll find out in the chapters that follow. But as we close today, here's a question to ponder. Let's talk about Mordecai. Was Mordecai a victim or was he vulnerable? Well, I would argue that he was both. But Let's talk about his victim status first. Mordecai was not a victim the way we play victimology uh, today. If you read the books and the essays and the studies, victimhood is very popular today because somehow victimhood now grants power to the people claiming that they are victims, and the victim never has to deal with any of the consequences, in theory. There's a book that I read six years ago by a couple of sociologists, uh, Manning and Campbell, I could not put this book down. It was on my list six years ago on the first Sunday of January that you should read. It's called um, The Rise of Victimhood Culture, uh, and, and it, it speaks to all of, uh, all of this. And so the question is, well, is Mordecai playing the victim so he can get power? Do you see Mordecai, any of that going on in Mordecai's victimhood? Not, not at all. Yeah, he's the victim of the shameless and evil Haman, but Mordecai was willing to suffer the consequences of his decision. He wasn't doing this for power. He was doing it because it was what was right. And he had no human power in the midst of all of this. The only power he had was the power of God. And in chapter 4, we're going to see that's what he relied on. But he also made himself vulnerable, but it was for a cause that was much bigger than himself, the glory and righteousness of God and for the sake of his people. Mordecai risked it all and knew that it could cost him everything. Here's what today's brand of victimhood looks like. It isn't risky. It blames everyone else. It's a calculated means to gain power. It's a tool that's used to shape a false narrative, and it is selfish to the core. This is not the kind of victimhood that Mordecai was experiencing. His was rooted in vulnerability. Vulnerability, Mordecai style, is selfless, humble, and recognizes that there is something bigger in the universe than me. Listen, the world that is described in the Bible from Genesis 3 to today and to Revelation chapter 20 is marked by degradation, tragedy, and injustice. And in the midst of that, I hope that we can all realize that no worldly kingdom ever lasts forever. No worldly kingdom ever lasts forever. Not Assyria, not Babylon, not Persia, not the Greeks, not Rome, not England, not the United States, not even the Kansas City Chiefs or Taylor Swift, which I know brings some of you great delight. No vision of utopia has ever been achieved nor will ever be achieved, even though it's not for a lack of trying. But that vision and promise of utopia, a vision that so many people espouse, should make us all suspicious of anyone, politicians, artists, celebrities, or pastors, suspicious of anyone who make these grand claims of utopia. Jim Jones, anyone? Jonestown, Guyana? If you get nothing else out of this morning, get this quote from Andy Crouch who spoke with immeasurable truth when he wrote this. Beware of world changers. They have yet to learn the true meaning of sin. 
Again, that's why we all need Jesus. The vision of heaven and utopia and perfection can never be achieved by humans, only by God. And he did it, and he chose to do it by sending his son to be the perfect sacrificial death. He was a king like no other. He came to die, not to exalt himself. He came to die. He did it through his sacrificial death as atonement for our sins and then was raised three days later to give us eternal life. Jesus was vulnerable and he was a victim. Mordecai was sort of a prototype of Jesus. Only Jesus had eternity on his side as well. Jesus willingly gave up his power so that you and I could be made righteous. That is the good news of the gospel that is not possible without this wild and crazy story of Esther and Mordecai and Xerxes and Haman. And here's the interesting thing. We're going to read this story, and it's going to look like uh, Mordecai and Esther are heroes. And I will tell you, they did some heroic things, but they're not heroes. The only hero in this story is God, and we need to remember that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you for this story of Esther, and we thank you that through this This history, this story, you have preserved the Jews so that Jesus could be born, so that he could do his work on the cross for us. God, thank you for that. And I just pray that we would have the same courage that Mordecai had, that we're willing for the right things to be victims, and that we're willing to be vulnerable enough to do what is right. Help us to have that courage. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.